Part 62 of the Chronicles of Crime, Volume 1, by Camden Pelham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 62. George Allen. Executed for the murder of his three children. There can be little doubt that the horrid offence committed by this wretched man was prompted by insanity, and it is surprising that a jury should have found him guilty of the crime imputed to him, without declaring this to be their opinion. It appeared on his trial, which took place at Stafford, in the month of March 1807, that on the evening of the 12th of January he retired to rest with his wife, and that, in about an hour, the latter was awoke by her finding her husband sitting upright in bed, smoking a pipe. In another bed in the same room lay three of his infant children asleep, the eldest boy about ten years old, the second a girl about six, and another boy about three, and Mrs. Allen also had an infant at her breast. On his perceiving his wife to be awake, the prisoner demanded to know what other man she had in the house with her, to which she answered that there was no man there but himself. He, however, insisted to the contrary, and jumped out of bed and ran downstairs. His wife followed him, but he returned, and meeting her on the stairs, bade her go back. He then went to the bed where his children were, and turned down the clothes. On her endeavouring to hold him, he told her to let him alone, or he would serve her the same sauce, and immediately attempted to cut her throat, in which he partly succeeded, and also wounded her right breast, but a handkerchief she wore about her head and neck prevented the wound from being fatal. She then extricated herself, having the babe in her arms all the time, which she preserved unhurt, and jumped, or rather fell, downstairs. But before she could well rise from the ground, one of the children, the girl, fell at her feet, with its head nearly cut off, which her wretched husband had murdered and thrown after her. The woman opened the door and screamed out that her husband was cutting off their children's heads, and a neighbour shortly came to her assistance, and a light having been procured, the monster was found standing in the middle of the house-place, with a razor in his hand. He was asked what he had been doing, when he replied coolly, "'Nothing yet. I have only killed three of them.' On their going upstairs a most dreadful spectacle presented itself. The head of one of the boys was very nearly severed from his body, and the bellies of both were partly cut and partly ripped open, and the bowels torn completely out and thrown on the floor. Alan made no attempt to escape, and was taken without resistance. He said that it was his intention to murder his wife and all her children, and then to have put an end to himself. He also declared that he meant to have murdered an old woman who lay bedridden in the same house. An inquest was subsequently held on the bodies of the three children before Mr. Hand, the coroner of Utoxeter, when the miserable man confessed his guilt, but without expressing any contrition. He promised also to confess something that had lain heavily on his mind, and Mr. Hand, supposing it might relate to a crime he had before committed, caused him to be examined in the presence of other gentlemen, when he told an incoherent story of a ghost, in the shape of a horse, having about four years before enticed him into a stable, where it drew blood from him, and then flew into the sky. With respect to the murder of his children, he observed to the coroner, with apparent unconcern, that he supposed it was as bad a case as he had ever heard of. 
The horrid circumstances of these murders having been fully proved, he was convicted and suffered the final sentence of the law at Stafford, March 30th, 1807. Martha Alden, executed for the murder of her husband. Of the numerous instances which we have already adduced, wherein women have committed that very worst of all crimes, the murder of their husbands, perhaps no case has been attended with more malice, art, and cruelty than that of Martha Alden. Her trial for this offence came on at the summer assizes for the county of Norfolk in the year 1807. From the evidence adduced, it appeared that the deceased was a labouring man of rather diminutive stature, and lived with the prisoner in a small cottage near Attleborough in Norfolk. On the night of Saturday, the 13th of July, the deceased and his wife were in company with a man named Draper at the White Horse Public House, Attleborough, drinking together, and about ten o'clock the prisoner went away, saying she should go home. At twelve o'clock Draper conducted Alden, who was slightly intoxicated, to his own door, and left him there with the prisoner. In the morning, at about three o'clock, a man named Hill was passing the prisoner's house on his way to see a relation at about ten miles off, when the prisoner accosted him, saying that she could not think what smart young man it was going down the common. A short conversation ensued, in which the prisoner said that she had not returned long from the town, where she had been drinking with her husband and Draper, and that her husband had then gone, she did not know where, but that she thought he had gone to a brother of his, who lived in Essex. It was remarked by Hill that he knew that Alden had let himself to Mr. Parson for the harvest, to which the prisoner assented, but said that she knew he would never come back, and that if he got a job he would never settle to it. Between six and seven o'clock the prisoner was met in the road by Mr. Parson, a farmer, accompanied by a young woman named Oris, when she said that she had lost her husband, and expressing herself very unhappy about him, declared her belief that he was either murdered or drowned, and on the following morning she was again seen by the same person, when she said that she had walked above thirty miles in search of him, but could not find him. On the Monday evening the prisoner borrowed a spade from a neighbour named Leader, with an alleged intention of mending her hedge, which had been destroyed by pigs, which had got in and rooted up her potatoes, and one having been lent to her she went away, and was afterwards seen at work in the ditch surrounding her garden. Up to this time no traces of her husband had been discovered, but on Tuesday night Mrs. Leader went to a pond on the common to look for some ducks which she had missed, and having found them she was on her way home, when she remarked something in a large pit or pond which lay in her path. She went to the edge of the pond and touched the object with a stick, and it sank and rose again, but although the moon shone she could not distinguish what it was, and she went home. Her curiosity, however, having been raised, she returned to the spot on the following morning, and then she again touched the substance with a stick, on which it turned over and to her terror she saw two hands appear, the arms being clothed in a shirt which was stained with blood. The alarm was immediately given, and the body being taken out, it proved to be that of the prisoner's husband. It was covered only with an old coat, with a slop or shirt over it, and the head appeared to be dreadfully mangled. The face was much chopped, and the head nearly cut off, and other injuries were inflicted, which could not have been done by the unfortunate deceased himself. 
The body was immediately conveyed in a cart to the house of the prisoner, who was taken into custody. On her house being examined, the bedding and bed were found to be smeared with blood, and the walls of the bedroom bore marks of their having been spattered with the same fluid, but partly washed. Two sacks, also bloody, were discovered concealed under a peat-stack, and from a dark cupboard was produced a bill-hook, with which the foul deed was evidently perpetrated, and from which the blood had been only partially removed. On the garden being searched, a species of grave was found to have been dug about forty yards from the house, and at the spot where the prisoner had been seen at work, sufficiently broad and long to receive the body of the deceased, but only about eighteen inches deep. In addition, however, to these facts, the testimony of the girl Oris, whose name had already been mentioned, was procured. She stated that she had been acquainted with the prisoner a good while, and had frequently been at her house. On Sunday, the 19th, the prisoner asked her to go with her to her house, and when she got there the prisoner said to her, I have killed my husband, and taking her into the bedroom, showed her the body lying on the bed quite dead, with the wounds as before described. Her account of the state and appearance of the room perfectly coincided with the descriptions of the former witnesses. She also saw a hook lying on the floor, all bloody. When the hook was shown to her in court, she said it was the very same she had then seen. The prisoner then produced a common corn-sack, and at her request the witness held it while the prisoner put the body into it. The prisoner then carried the body from the bedroom, through the passage and kitchen, out of the house, across the road to the ditch surrounding the garden, and left it there, after throwing some mould over it. The witness then left the prisoner, and went to Larling, and the prisoner slept that night at the witness's father's house. On the following night, between nine and ten o'clock, the witness was again in company with the prisoner, and saw her remove the body of her husband from the ditch of the garden to the pit on the common, dragging it herself along the ground in the sack and when arrived at the pit, the prisoner shot the body into it out of the sack, which she afterwards carried away with her. The deceased had a shirt and slop on. The prisoner said nothing to her at the time, and she went home. The next morning, Tuesday, the witness went to the prisoner's house, and assisted in cleaning it up, taking some warm water, and washing and scraping the wall next the bed. The prisoner took up some loose straw, and told the witness she would carry and throw it into Mr. Parsons' ditch, because it was bloody. The prisoner bade the witness to be sure not to say a word about the matter, for if she did, she, the witness, would certainly be hanged. Upon being questioned to that effect by the judge, the witness further stated that she had told the story to her father on the Tuesday night, and to nobody else. On his lordship asking the prisoner what she had to say in her defence, she told an incoherent story, which, however, as far as it was at all intelligible, seemed rather to aim at making the testimony of the last witness appear contradictory and suspicious, and to implicate her in the guilt of the transaction, than to deny the general charges which had been adduced against herself. The learned judge then summed up the evidence in a very full and able manner, and the jury returned a verdict of guilty. The prisoner was immediately sentenced to death. Her behaviour subsequently was becoming the awful situation in which she was placed. She confessed the justice of her conviction, and admitted that she had murdered her husband with the bill-hook. She declared, however, that it was not the result of a premeditated malice, but that her husband, having threatened to beat her, the thought came into her head when he lay down to go to sleep. 
she was drawn on a hurdle to the place of execution on the castle hill on the thirty first of july eighteen o seven and there underwent the punishment of death pursuant to her sentence john palmer executed for burglary this prisoner although at the time of his execution he was only twenty-three years of age was nevertheless an old offender and richly merited the fate which befell him he was indicted at the old bailey sessions in september eighteen o eight for having on the eighth of the same month feloniously assaulted william waller and for having with a certain sharp instrument which he held in his right hand stabbed and cut him in and upon his head with intent in so doing to kill and murder him in another indictment he was charged with burglariously breaking and entering the dwelling-house of henry kimpton with intent to steal and stealing therein a pair of snuffers the facts which were proved in evidence were that the house in question was situated at number twenty manchester square and that being furnished and unoccupied waller was placed in it to take care of it by mr kempton who was an auctioneer on the eighth of september at about four o'clock in the afternoon waller went out having previously carefully shut up the doors and windows of the house and he did not return until near twelve o'clock at night he then found the house to all appearance undisturbed but upon his going up to the room in which he slept which was on the garret floor he perceived that his bed was in disorder he was in the act of turning round to ascertain whether any person was in the adjoining apartment when he was suddenly seized from behind by a man whom he presently saw was the prisoner he cried lord have mercy upon me but the prisoner said do not speak a word lie down on the bed that is all you have to do and then pushing him threw him on his face on his bed at this moment a second man whom the prisoner called joseph made his appearance and waller attempting to offer some resistance they threatened him with instant death he however continued to struggle and having at length extricated himself from the grasp of the prisoner he was running toward the window to give an alarm when he was suddenly felled to the ground by a tremendous blow on the head from an iron crowbar he managed to rise and open the window and cry murder but he was again violently assailed but then the people below having called to him to go down and open the door he managed to escape and run down into the passage he was pursued by the prisoner whom however he missed on his reaching the ground floor and he was employed in opening the street door when the people without who had been alarmed by his cries suddenly burst it in upon him and knocked him down at this moment the prisoner was seen to ascend the area steps and to jump over the gate into the street and being seized he declared that he belonged to the house and that they were trying to murder the man upstairs but waller was by this time sufficiently recovered to recognize him and having informed the mob which had by this time assembled that he was the person by whom he had been so violently attacked he was handed over to the custody of a watchman all search after his companion having proved fruitless the prisoner was carried to the watch-house and then on his being searched a phosphorus box with matches was found in his possession and a paper bearing the following memorandum number thirteen edward street and a house in harley street number thirty oxford street and number twenty manchester square done a pair of snuffers which was proved to have been taken from mr kimpton's house was also taken from him besides a large bunch of picklock and skeleton keys the prisoner when called on for his defence 
denied that he was the person who had escaped from the house, and declared that, having come up with the crowd upon hearing the outcry, he had picked up the snuffers and keys which were found upon him. He said that he had served in the navy, and had only returned seven months from the Mediterranean station, where he had been a seaman on board the Lion, Captain Rollies. His protestations of innocence were, however, vain, and the jury returned a verdict of guilty on both indictments. Sentence of death was subsequently passed in the usual form, and of all those prisoners who by their crimes subjected themselves to condign punishment, and who were tried at these sessions, Palmer was the only one who was ordered for execution. In the course of the time which intervened between his conviction and the termination of his career, he gave evident proofs of his wicked disposition, and of the justice with which he was selected as the object upon whom capital punishment should be inflicted. A few weeks before his execution, he formed a plan of escape, which, had it been fully carried out, would have involved him in the additional guilt of murder. Finding it necessary to procure the aid of a fellow prisoner, he selected a fellow who was also under sentence of death, to whom he communicated his project, and he at once consented to participate in his danger, in the hope of sharing in his success. It was arranged that the plot should be put into execution on the Sunday following. Palmer and his associate, having then excused themselves from attending chapel, whither the other prisoners and the principal turnkeys would have gone, on the score of illness, they were to attack the jailer, whose duty it would be to attend upon them, and having deprived him of life, and possessed themselves of his keys, they were to make the best of their way to the outer gate. Here they were aware that they should meet with another jailer, but having overcome him by threats or by main force, they were to secure their escape to the street, where their friends would be in attendance to receive them. In order to further their design, Palmer had already furnished himself with spring saws to remove their irons, and rope ladders had also been provided, to be used in case of any further impediment presenting itself to them, and by which they would be able to scale the walls. So far as its arrangement, the plot had gone on with perfect success, when Palmer's companion, being conscience-stricken at the crime which was contemplated, communicated all that had been determined on to Mr. Newman, the keeper of the prison, and proper means were in consequence taken for the security of the prisoners. Palmer, finding himself thus foiled in his object, which he had entertained sanguine hopes that he should have been able to accomplish, now proceeded to apply himself to those duties which he had hitherto neglected. As the period approached for his execution, he expressed himself anxious that the time allowed him for preparation should be prolonged, but his wish being conveyed to the government by Mr. Sheriff Hunter, it was determined that it should not be acceded to, and the law was directed to take its course. Wednesday, 23rd of November, 1808, having been fixed for the termination of his life, on that morning his sentence was carried out. On his way to the scaffold he was attended by Dr. Ford, the ordinary of the jail, to whom he confessed the justice of his punishment. He appeared to be perfectly resigned to his fate, and expressed a hope that his death would be an example to others. In order to atone for his own errors, he made a full confession of every robbery and burglary in which he had been concerned, and gave many particulars of the practices and haunts of thieves, which subsequently proved extremely useful to the police. When on the scaffold he attempted to address the mob, but his speech failed him, and his eyes being covered with a silk handkerchief at his own request, the drop fell at the usual signal, and in a few minutes he ceased to live. Thomas Simmons, executed for murder.
The offence of this miscreant was of a most horribly atrocious nature. It appears that he was the son of poor parents, but being thought to be a likely lad, he was taken into the service of a Mr. Borham, who lived at Hoddesdon at an early period of his life. He continued in this situation for several years, but on his reaching the age of nineteen years, he was dismissed on account of his brutal ferocity of disposition, which had displayed itself on various occasions. He had, it appears, paid his address to Elizabeth Harris, the servant in the house, who was many years older than he, but, by the advice of her mistress, the woman declined having anything to say to him. In consequence of this circumstance, the villain vowed vengeance against the servant and her mistress, and on the afternoon of the 20th of October, 1807, he proceeded to his late master's to satisfy his revenge in a manner most horrible and atrocious. There were at the time of his going to the house Mr. and Mrs. Boreham, and their four daughters, in the building besides a Mrs. Hummerston and the servant Elizabeth Harris. About a quarter past nine at night, the party sitting in the parlour was alarmed by hearing a loud noise of voices at the back part of the house, and upon listening they heard Simmons disputing with the servant and demanding admittance. This was, however, refused, and presently afterwards the former plunged his hand, armed with a knife, through the lattice window, and attempted to stab the girl, but without success. Mrs. Hummerston, on this, went to the scullery, from which the noise proceeded, and opening the door, found that Simmons had penetrated through the farmyard, and was within the stone-yard. On her opening the door, he suddenly rushed at her, and with his knife stabbed her in the jugular artery, and pulling the knife forward laid open her throat on the left side. She ran forward, as is supposed for the purpose of alarming the neighbourhood, but fell and rose no more. The murderer then pursued his sanguinary purpose, and rushing into the parlour raised and brandished his bloody knife, swearing a dreadful oath that he would give it them all. Mrs. Warner, Mr. Boreham's eldest daughter, was the person next him, and without allowing her time to rise from her chair he gave her so many stabs in the jugular vein and about her neck and breast that she fell from her chair covered with streams of blood and expired. Fortunately Miss Anne Boreham had gone upstairs directly before the commencement of this horrid business, and her sisters Elizabeth and Sarah, terrified at the horrors they saw, ran upstairs too for safety. The villain immediately afterwards attacked the aged Mrs. Boreham, by a similar aim at her jugular artery, but missed the point and wounded her deep in the neck, though not mortally. The poor old gentleman was now making his way towards the kitchen where the servant-maid was, but the miscreant pursued him, and in endeavouring to reach the same place, overset him, and then endeavoured to stab the servant in the throat. She struggled with him, caught at the knife, and was wounded severely in the hand and arm, and the knife fell in the struggle. The girl, however, escaped from his grasp, and running into the street, by her screams and cries of murder, she alarmed the whole neighbourhood. Several persons instantly came to her assistance, and while some offered their aid to the unhappy beings who had been wounded, others sought for the murderer. Their search was for some time in vain, but they at length succeeded in discovering him, concealed in a cow-crib in the farmyard. He was immediately secured, and so tightly bound, to prevent his escape, that the circulation was almost stopped, and in the night death was near cheating justice of her victim. The ligatures were, however, loosed in the morning, in ample time to preserve him to undergo the punishment to which his crimes had subjected him. Upon the attendance of two professional men, 
they found that all attempts to assist Mrs. Warner and Mrs. Hummerston would be useless, as they were already dead, and they directly turned their attention to Mrs. Boreham and the servant. Mr. Boreham was found lying on the ground with a poker by his side, but being afflicted with the palsy, and besides being very aged, he had been unable to use it in opposition to his assailant. A coroner's inquest was subsequently held upon the bodies of the deceased persons, and a verdict of willful murder was returned against the prisoner, upon which he was committed to Hartford Jail to await his trial. Mr. Boreham, being a Quaker, he refused to prosecute in the case of Mrs. Warner, but an indictment was preferred in the case of Mrs. Hummerston, upon which the prisoner was arraigned at the Hartford Assizes on the 4th of March, 1808, the above facts having been proved in evidence, as well as the additional circumstance of the prisoner having confessed his guilt, when, before the coroner, and of his having declared that his intention was to murder Mrs. Boreham, Mrs. Warner, and Elizabeth Harris, the servant, a verdict of guilty was returned. The awful sentence of death was then pronounced upon him, and he was hanged on the 7th of March, 1808, having exhibited throughout the whole transaction the utmost coolness and indifference. End of part 62